Before I read our scripture text for you, let me uh, introduce our guest preacher today. Uh, Reverend Doug Estella is a friend of mine for many years, and I'm delighted that he and his wife Janet are here, that he is able to uh, bring us the Word of God. Doug Estella, for those of you who don't know him, is an ordained pastor in the Reformed Church in America. He and his wife Janet have been involved over the years at, here at ACC, also at a sister congregation in Sunnyside, and they are people who love the Lord and love His people. And Doug has a particularly uh, just wonderful gift for bringing God's Word to the church. Doug and I studied at the same seminary, Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, not at the same time, but uh, we share that in common. And so it's a joy that we'll get to hear God's Word from him. Let's turn our attention to Scripture now, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Doug, please come. Thank you, David, for in inviting me here. And it's, uh, it's been a long time. I was just trying to remember the last time I gave a message here, and it had to be, it had to be over 15 years ago, I think. But it's good to be here again and to be with all of you who are watching uh, through the live stream. <clears throat> you know, this... <clears throat> excuse me. Pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength 
and our Redeemer. Amen. You know, I chose the title, No Judgment. Yes, it's no condemnation that we experience through Christ Jesus our Lord. But I, I just, no judgment just reminds me of something that's bandied about that, uh, of recent, an expression. You know, when someone says, Doug, that's an awful lot of carbs on your plate. Not, not judging, no judgment. Or, you know, you're still using styrofoam cups? No judgment. And why, they're full of judgment. That bony finger of indignation has been pointing at the person every time we use that expression. Well, the good news for you and for me today is a true pronunciation of no judgment from our God in whom there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Long ago, um, when I was fairly new in the faith, I bought a copy of the Living Bible. Remember that? The Living Bible. It was a fresh paraphrase of the Bible in contemporary language. And uh, there have been other paraphrases, of course, since then. But I still have my original copy from, when was it, 1971 uh, or something like that? And as a new believer in Christ, I read these words from Romans 8 in that Living Bible version. So there is now no condemnation awaiting those who belong to Christ Jesus for the power of the life-giving spirit, and this power is mine through Christ Jesus, has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. That phrase, the vicious circle of sin and death, it literally grabbed me, it leaped off the page and touched my 21-year-old heart in a way uh, that I've never experienced before. The words jumped off where I actually felt free from that vicious circle of sin and death. I understood for the first time that I was on a treadmill of bad habits and rotten attitudes that clouded my vision of life and of God. And that for the first time, I was freed from that trap that led to nowhere. It was a, a sense, I guess, of the being a new convert, yes, but that sense that the scripture was God actually speaking to me as if he were sitting there on my bunk in the U.S. Air Force at that time. Did it mean that I never tried to hop back on that treadmill? No, not at all. In fact, uh, what, as recently as this morning, I guess I was trying to get that foot back on that, that treadmill. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, I've been freed, and so have you. And therefore, these words that spoke so strongly to me about the inevitability of judgment with no condemnation uh, being pronounced spelled freedom. Freedom from guilt. Now guilt, there's a word for you. There's all kinds of guilt. You know, the, in the world, there's, of course, there's Jewish guilt. There's Catholic guilt, and I know a whole lot about that because that's my background. And yes, there's even Protestant guilt in all of its different uh, permutations. 
There's the evangelical version of guilt. Did I do my quiet time? Did I read my Bible? Am I praying every day? Am I witnessing? There's the mainline version of guilt. Did I work in the soup kitchen? What am I doing to change the world? How am I contributing to a safer planet? But guilt all the same. And we can pile even guilt on guilt so that there is this indescribable, indescribable guilt that's just that feeling that I did something wrong but I can't even put my finger on it. But whatever its source, guilt plagues the human spirit like nothing else, as it did me on the eve of my own conversion. But brothers and sisters, there's another kind of guilt that Paul is talking about here, a guilt that is real. This isn't imaginary or the result of a childhood traumatized by criticism or constant correction. This guilt of what Paul is talking about in the letter to the Romans is our natural failing to miss the mark of God's golden standard for our lives and for that relationship that we have with God. More than that, it is the guilt that defines the gulf between us and God, the static that distorts to the, um, that distorts to the point of non-communication our broken relationship with God. This is the guilt that Paul is speaking of in the book of Romans. And it is to this guilt, this real guilt, not the neurotic kind that I was just alluding to earlier, but to this, this static, this non-communication, this broken relationship that Paul is addressing, the book of Romans, when he says, there is therefore now no condemnation. Everything that he has, been, has written to up to now, from chapter 1 through chapter 7, points this out to this great proclamation, which is the significance of the word therefore in chapter 8, verse 1. Remember, whenever Paul puts the word therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. And it's to remind us that what follows is built upon what has been established previously. That is, in the first three chapters, Paul establishes the fact of sin as a fundamental rejection of God and his standards. In chapters 5 through 6, he shows sin's effects on individuals and societies. And then he writes of the place of faith in Christ as the key to dealing with this sin problem. And then with one more reality check in chapter 7, the tension that pulls at us between God's way and ours way, Paul literally bursts into joy with this resounding sentence, therefore, there is no condemnation. This isn't a therapist's recommendation that we go easy on ourselves, much less that we deny that there's anything wrong. No, this declaration is something that God has accomplished for you and for me in Christ. What we couldn't do for ourselves God has done for us and through us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is from this state of acquittal of guilt that we can count on three realities uh, as we live the Christian life. Three things, uh, implications in this chapter 
It's a rich chapter. There's a whole lot of stuff in here. But these three things for now, that we've been set free, that we've been given a new focus, and that we've been given a supernatural power or strength. But first, set free. Uh, just as we were singing this hymn earlier, it, it struck me, the chorus, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. And those words just captured also in the, in the famous words of uh, Martin Luther King's uh, I've Got a Dream speech, free at last, free at last, thank God we're free at last. These words that Paul writes apply to us in, in, in such a way that all guilt has been set aside. The guilt of sin and all the other guilts that follow from that. Digging deeper into the passage, Paul tells his readers that they have been set free from two types of law. Now to unpack some of these words, he says that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. By law here, Paul is speaking about the principle or the rule of sin and death. That is, that, that it's, its grip or rule over our lives. He also uses the word law in reference to the law of God, the moral law of God, but not in this particular instance. We have been set free from the law of sin or from its, its, its dominion over our lives, the way it, it tends to shape our lives and put us back on that treadmill. And so here's what the no condemnation, where the no condemnation part becomes a liberating reality for us. We have literally been set free from the necessity to sin. We no longer have to do these things that displease God and harm our neighbor and ourselves. And this is because we have been set free from the guilt of sin. We're under no obligation anymore to cut that neighbor off that's trying to get ahead of us on the road. We're no obligation to answer back in retaliation for those who offend us. And it's because he took our place on the cross and took the guilt, took the punishment, took the condemnation for you and for me that we might be set free. My late mother-in-law was, was an organist in her little church in Pennsylvania and I'll still remember this. It was a, a small town church, very homespun, not, certainly not as, as beautiful as, as this building that we're in right now. And behind the pulpit was one of those standard Solomon Head of Christ pictures. You may remember the ones I have, the, the typical blonde Jesus in a profile, kind of like that with the flowing air. Yeah, you've seen them. And behind, that, behind the pulpit was a large reproduction of that painting and some craftsmen in the church carved wooden letters on top of that that said he took my place and every time we Janet and I would go to 
Honesdale, Pennsylvania and worship at my mother-in-law's church. I would forget about the, the homespunness of the place, the simpleness of a, a country church, and fixate on those words and the truth behind that picture. He took my place. He took your place and the punishment that we deserved. But we have also been set free from this power of sin. And this is where the we don't have to part comes in. As strong as temptations might be, and they are, they do not have any power over us. We have been set free by Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. That is, he took our guilt and gave us his innocence. We have been declared righteous. And thus sin has no power over us as we sing the old hymn, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven or wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Well, secondly, brothers and sisters, we've been given a new focus. The key phrase here is set their mind. That we set our minds, right, on the things that are above, as Paul writes. He says that those who are in the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And by flesh means the sum total of our human nature, estranged from, hostile to God, or our sinful nature. Flesh here, of course, is not a reference to our physical makeup, which it, it can mean in some places, but here it is that condition whereby we are estranged or hostile to God. But we do not set our minds on the things of the flesh, but rather the mindset that we want to set is the things of the spirit. The mindset of the flesh looks only to earthly things, to security, pleasure, recognition, personal peace and affluence. But the root of sin manifests itself when we seek to fulfill any one or more of these goals in immoral or harmful ways. St. Augustine, in fact, uh, defined sin as a wrongful way of obtaining a good thing. He defined sin as a wrongful way of obtaining what is something that is good. So we're insecure, we steal. We're frightened, we lash out. And in that way, he, does, he gives us a kind of breviary of sin, which defines the looking after something good in a wrong way. And it is taking delight in created things to the exclusion of the creator. Setting our minds on the flesh may be compared to a kind of practical atheism or living as if there were no God. But to set our minds on the spirit, Paul says, means that our focus is on God, on the giver of all good things. Our trust is in Christ. 
the guarantor of our acceptance by God. Our trust is in him who will provide for our needs, that we do not have to go after those needs in a way that is harmful to us, to our neighbor, and offensive uh, to the Lord. That through good times and bad, we place our hopes in Christ, that he who has set us free sets us free to shift our focus, our mindset, on him who will provide for all our needs. And where we need the most, our relationship with God. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit means uh, putting into practice Jesus' own exhortation to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then trusting him for all else that would be added to us. It all boils down to trust. Who are you going to trust? Are you willing to bet your life on your own capacity to make yourself truly happy and fulfilled? Or are you willing to bet your life on Christ for these things? Are you willing to bet your life on him? And so we're given this new focus, brothers and sisters. We're set free from the condemnation of guilt and sin. And we've been given a new focus to, to look beyond the immediate to the eternal, knowing that the immediate will be taken care of, that these things in life are important, but that at the same time, they do not define us ultimately. We are living as people of the kingdom of God. And so thirdly, no condemnation, no judgment means we have been given power. We've been given a supernatural power. And I, I'm not ashamed to use that word supernatural in such a secular age because our own natural capacity to help ourselves and save ourselves is definitely limited, if not by the very fact that I'm surrounded by plexiglass and equipment, and here we're sitting all separated, and I'm sure there's no coffee hour afterwards where we can hug and, and renew friendships and ties. We are limited, and we need a supernatural solution. And that super or beyond the natural solution ultimately comes from God who is our help and who is our Savior. And so we've been given a power, brothers and sisters, to live in this new reality in the present limitations and circumstances. In verses 9 through 11, Paul reminds us that we who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit within us. That is, the very presence of Christ dwells within us, giving us the power for living a new life. He has set us free to live. And this spirit is the living water that Jesus said would flow from those who trust in him. And what does this Holy Spirit do? He leads us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never points, us to, him, points to himself, as an end, but rather points us to Christ in, in whom we are to place our trust and confidence. 
J.I. Packer gave a wonderful illustration of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he is like the floodlights of a great cathedral. And so that we, at night we see this beautiful edifice illuminated before us. We may not see the floodlights, but we see that which the lights reflect on. And so the Holy Spirit shows us Jesus in all his glory, shows the reflection of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What else does the Spirit do? He leads us to honor Christ with our lips and our lives. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? He transforms us to become more like Jesus in our daily lives. In practical terms, when I want to put my foot back on that treadmill of that vicious cycle of sin and death, it is the Holy Spirit who says, Doug, get your foot off of that, and gives you and me the power to say no. Not of our own strength, but of his. The Holy Spirit is at work in our inmost self. He helps us to battle temptation and sin and to conform our lives to Christ. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us is the power of God to live an authentic Christian life whereby we know that we are fully accepted by God and set free by his grace to live and love as Christ has. Paul's frequent statement that we are in Christ, and he uses that a lot in his letters, means that Christ is in us. There's that, that reflection of that, that interconnection that Jesus even reflected in his uh, great high priestly prayer at the end of John, that we are in him and he is in the Father, and the Father through the Spirit is in us, and there is this interconnection that when we are in Christ, Christ is also dwelling in us. And therefore, through his substitutionary death, his resurrection, Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, gives us the supernatural power to say no to sin, to choose in his strength to not do what comes naturally. There's probably no better, wonderful illustration of this in the, uh, <clears throat> that story of the uh, Les Miserables. You may remember, I don't know if you've, if you've seen the, the play or watched the film version. I don't know if anybody's read the book, by the way. I, I tried one time, but I never got past uh, like page 25. It's got about like 900 pages. I decided, no, I think uh, I'll watch the movie instead. But there's a wonderful opening scene in there that, that it still grabs me. It, 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 you could hardly watch it without being moved. The main character is this guy named Jean Valjean. And he's an ex-convict. Right? He just got out of, out of prison. And somehow he, he gets in touch with the, uh, this bishop, this kindly bishop, and the bishop invites him over to his home for, uh, for dinner and lets him stay with him a while. And um, the bishop gives him some money, and Jean Valjean 
when the bishop leaves the dining room, steals the silverware and, all, and, and a lot of the, uh, the silver servings and the expensive uh, uh, dinnerware that's around, puts it in a sack, and quickly leaves the bishop's residence. Well, he's caught by the cops, he's brought back to the bishop's house, and he's in handcuffs, and they have the sack, and they say, Lord Bishop, here, here is the silverware that this man stole from you. And do you remember what Jean Valjean said? I mean, uh, the bishop said to him, he says, oh, no, 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 that was a gift. Hey, you forgot, you forgot this too. And he takes two silver candelabra and puts it in the sack and says, this is, your, this is yours too. It was just a gift. It's a misunderstanding. The cops let him go, uncuff him, and leave. And here's the part that, that just, just such a beautiful picture of, of the power of the gospel. The bishop, we don't even give it. Victor Hugo doesn't even give the guy's name. He's the bishop of Dean. Yeah. He says to Jean, I have bought your life. Go live as an honest man and use these to live as an honest person, which the rest of the play is exactly what Jean Valjean does. Brothers and sisters, he who died on the cross and rose again gave you and me a gift. And his word to you and to me is I've set you free. Go and live as my people. Do the work with I, with, which I have given you to do. And above all, my friends, live free from guilt. For we are not only set free from the guilt of sin, but from all that other guilt too. We don't have to walk out of here with heavy hearts anymore. For we have been set free. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have set us free. That we are no longer bound by the have-to of sin and self-centeredness. But that we have been set free. That we've been given a new focus. And by your spirit dwelling within us, have the power to live the life that you have set before each of us to follow. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.